We're hard at work on our next season, which will be coming at you this May, so stay tuned. In the meantime, we're featuring the work of people we think you'll love and revisiting some of our favorite Love & Radio episodes. This was originally published in 2015. Hey, you've reached Love & Radio listener line at 641-715-3900, extension 55403. You can leave a secret here or leave a message about anything else you want. Thanks. Um, hi, yeah, I'd like to stay anonymous. Um, I, let's see. Four years, I've been extremely suicidal, but haven't been able to tell anyone except for very close friends and a boyfriend and I don't know, I can't even tell my therapist, but I'm afraid that my mother is finding out, which is very fun. But um yeah, for anyone out there who feels similarly it's possible to get better. You just kinda Gotta work through your own shit. But yeah, I love the podcast. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening. Bye. I think that's really beautiful. Um, that's like a work of art. Is there anything more important than what she said there in our entire lives? Is there anything more important than that message that she's saying? I'm here. Is there anybody else there? And the need for an answer. But, you know, the first thing that struck me when I was listening to her voice is how much you can hear the pain. And I feel it so strongly. And I know what that's like, that terror and pain. And and even, you know, your friends or your boyfriend more than likely haven't been there. So they, they can only be sort of sympathetic, not empathetic. So I, it's like I wanted to say, yeah, you know, I know exactly how you feel and I get it. You know, I've been there. And the fact that she's made that call at all is hope. And she's right. You know, you can get better. I mean, you can hear even as she's struggling, it's that other part of her mind. And you can feel those two things fighting. And, you know, the one part that's reaching out and saying something really beautiful and like putting her hand out there and saying, you know, is there anybody out there? Because I guarantee you, all these hands will come out of the darkness to meet hers and they'll say, yep, I'm right there with your sister. From PRX's Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Eternity Through Skirts and Waistcoats, featuring Nora Vincent. I have this photo that sits on my desk. I'm about three or four, and I'm wearing a little plastic fireman's helmet. And I've got this big Band-Aid on my forehead and my face is all scratched up. I'm not smiling at all and I just look really intense. That has been true of me for a very, very long time. I was always a tomboy. I had a cowboy outfit I used to like to wear. I was like a little warrior. I would run around in the neighborhood and I'd climb trees. 
All those cuts are from falls. I got in a fight with all the boys in the second grade class. And I just remember that they all started coming out for recess. And then I, I found myself fighting most of the boys and, you know, ended up in a barrel. I had a lot to prove. Androgyny was always a part of my life. It was something I really could not escape. There was one day, usually maybe two out of the year, when you had to wear a dress to school. Like it was, you know, May Day or something. People would, of course, tease me all day because I was known as the kid who wore boys' clothes. And they were like, Nora's in a dress, can you believe it? You know. Every time I kind of went to a new phase of my life, I thought maybe I should try to conform more and be more like the female version that people expected. When I went off to college, I went to Williams College in Western Massachusetts. I made a very conscious decision that summer before I went to buy some dresses. And I wore them for like the first, I don't know, month I was a student there. I consciously thought I need to start again and I need the people around me not to think of me as Nora, who's a gender weirdo. I had no idea, which is, I know, hard to believe, that I was queer. There were very few out queer people and they were considered really, really strange. You know, like the women were witches and the dudes, you know, who knows. So I just couldn't identify with them. I mean, I, I was like everybody else. I thought, you know, I want to be normal. And it wasn't until I got sort of bludgeoned with it at the very end of college, I just found myself looking into the blue eyes of this woman. And I just thought, wow. Like my body took over. We spent the summer together and then I began to realize, oh, I see this is what people are talking about. In 1998, I started being a writer full-time, a journalist. I had a higher education column for the Village Voice for a while. I wrote a column for Salon. And then I wrote a column that got syndicated for the um, Los Angeles Times op-ed page. That was usually politically oriented, whatever was topical. But I, I became known at the time as being somewhat conservative for a lesbian. It was easy to rile people up, you know, because... You say something that people don't, isn't received opinion, and it's very easy to, um, like, I'm, I'm like the orthodoxy of being gay, you know, it's like, especially as a lesbian, like that, you know, back then you had to dress a certain way, you had to have certain political opinions. There were words you couldn't say, you have to use this word. The minute you tell me that, I'm like a little kid. I'm like, I'm going to have the opposite then, because this is a free fucking country. <laughs> Sorry, no, you cannot tell me what I can and can't say. That's what I'm fighting for. I'm just not in a club. I don't, there's no place I belong, including the gay world. This is not my world because I don't share their opinions because I'm, I'm shouting a little bit, you know, I'm young and I want to like say what I think and I'm pissed off. And so they're pissed off too. And what they're basically saying is, you know, get out of the clubhouse. You know, if you, if you're going to criticize it, then get out. And then I was watching a reality TV show. Oh, my God. Now, these real men get to experience a whole new way of life. If they're men enough. Does this make my butt look big? And it was about cross-dressing. You know, this was sort of the era of the extreme makeover TV show. Whether living in a giant dollhouse or strutting their stuff in public. But, of course, what they really wanted to show was just the process of making over. And then they really did. They showed very little of them passing. And I thought, well, first of all, I can do this much better than they're doing it, and I can pass better. But also, 
when you passed, what happened? I decided that I was going to write a book about being a guy, and I called him Ned, and I went about dressing up and working out and taking voice lessons to become this guy named Ned. And I called it immersion journalism. I have natural advantages that I'm tall and my voice is deep. You know, I still am mistaken for a guy, you know, sometimes. So it's it, it wasn't really that hard to push it. You would take fake wool hair and you'd cut it into very, very little pieces and you'd take something called stopple paste and you would literally stick it onto your face. It would really look like stubble. He would talk more slowly and I, when I would talk more slowly, my voice could get deeper and I could let it fall and I could relax more. Like I'd have to slow down and I would let my voice fall and then I would be, you know, sort of get harsher. I mean, you can hear it's like getting deeper. And then I would just, I'd be a lot less accessible to you. You know, like, I'd just be, how you doing? What's going on? You know, like, I would just get very terse and very, like, I'd be a dick. Kind of. <laughs> 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 or try to be a dick. Have I, have I been doing this whole male thing wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I didn't have the truth of manhood, I couldn't get away with things that a lot of men do. I had to be kind of a caricature of a guy because there could be no question. Part of being more convincing sometimes was being a bit of a dick, but you could be a dick and get away with it. So like you'd be at a restaurant and you'd just be like, you know, I want the steak, medium rare, get me water. And that wouldn't be perceived as rude, whereas like a woman would never say that because you'd be a bitch, you know. And so you're like stumbling over yourself as a woman. You're like, would you mind when you have a second getting me some water? Initially, especially, it was thrilling to get away with it, you know, and sort of think, wow, they really bought it. You can be someone other than who you are and kind of be a spy. What was the first thing that you noticed when you were like walking around the world as a guy? Well, I was living in the East Village at the time, and the biggest thing that I noticed was that as a woman, guys would either already be staring at you, or if you looked at them, they would just stare you down. I would really notice it, like if I would go and I would dress up much more in a female way than I normally do, immediately it was like, guys' eyes. And then as a guy, you know, like my suit was my armor. I noticed right away that if you were perceived to be a guy, they would look away because that was either a challenge or a come on. And that was really startling to me to realize I kind of became invisible. Or like other guys would call you, you've probably had this happen, they call you boss or they call you bro. It's like this brotherhood thing, you know, that I'd never experienced. It's like this bond between dudes, you know, and it's like, whoa. And this whole subculture was like someone had changed the channel suddenly and it was like, whoa. I was living as a guy, and I was passing as a guy. I joined a men's bowling team. I dated women. I went to a monastery. Um, to a monastery? Yeah. It was a Benedictine monastery in Oklahoma. They had this program where, like, you know, if you wanted to do a retreat, 10 days. And I just applied, and then, you know... This was right after 9-11. And what's funny about that is that I had to go through security as myself. And so I had my fake penis in my bag, in a big bag of white powder. Try to explain that. I was told to keep it in cornstarch, because it would get sticky otherwise. One of those T 
TSA workers pulls out a bag of white powder. He was like, this is a dick. I could see on his face. It was like he just said, no, I'm not going there. So he just put it back in the bag and zipped it up. And he was like, get away from me. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so then I got through. And then on the plane, I had like a kit. And I had to go into the bathroom and become net. It was like Superman in the boot. Put my dick in my pants, wrapping down my breasts and putting my beard on. So that when I landed in Oklahoma, I was net. With everybody that I interacted with, there was eventually a time when I told them the reveal. And in some cases, it was nine months later, like with my bowling buddies at the end of the season. With the monks, it was at the end of the 10 days. You know, first I'd say, there's something about me you're not getting. Like, do you have any idea what it is? And like this guy was like, I don't know, you're a felon. (laughs) And or like a priest in a monastery. And the priest was like, you're not Catholic. (laughs) I was like, no. (laughs) You went on dates, too. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. What was that like? Um, pretty awful. <laughs> I mean, I had a rule that after the third date, like, I would tell anybody. I mean, it's funny because I, I, I went on dates with guys, and um, one of them got kind of interested in me as a, as a gay man. And then when I told him, he said, well, I'm not mad. It's just if you don't have the equipment, I'm just not into it. But chicks would often get mad, or they'd either that or they'd say, well, I want to sleep with you anyway. So it was an illustration, I guess, of the difference between male and female sexuality in part and also just the dating scene. Women were very angry a lot of the time, just at men in general, you know, and kind of projecting a lot of things onto men that had been from past men and making a lot of generalizations and that made me angry to be on the receiving end of, you know. What would they say? Well, just like assuming you were a jerk until you proved otherwise or – I remember meeting some woman who was very into the whole idea. Well, you know, you're you're a guy, and so you wouldn't know. And but just in general, it was it was a more you know it was like a statement about my character, an assumption about my character, you know. And it was just it really made me mad that I always came in behind the eight ball and always feeling on the defensive and always feeling like you know I had to prove myself yeah. and getting used to rejection, like at a bar. Some woman I asked her what's your name? And then she just said, I don't feel like having this conversation. And I just walked away. It's not that I didn't understand it to some degree from the other side, but, but still, if you're, if you're actually a nice guy and you're on the receiving end of that, it kind of sucks. What was it like for you knowing that you could pass? Did it make you feel more confident? Did it, I mean, I walk through the day as myself sometimes and I've already done being confident, being myself. Mm-hmm. But now I'm imagining pretending that I'm someone else. I would be so worried about being found out. Oh, I was. Yeah, I was constantly. There was a lot of stress with that. And I never felt comfortable. And I couldn't be nearly as natural as I am. And it took me until the age of 46, which I am now, to really feel comfortable with myself and not feel that I need to please anybody. But back then, when I was 34, you know, I, I, I did care. What were you worried about? You know, being an imposter, um, lying to people, because I did manage to convince people. And then when I told them, I mean, that's part of the book and it's fun because, you know, often the reactions were really funny um, or indicative. But, you know, I was like anybody else. I was unsure to some degree who I was 
that made it 10 times worse in a way. You know, here I thought I was conforming and I was going to be like a normal guy, right? But inside, it made me feel even more of a conflict, which of course is what, in the end, I just couldn't hold that up anymore. It was too stressful. He was like an adolescent because he was really having to learn how to be a man. And he was having to go through all the hazing that guys go through about being a guy and learning what was inappropriate and realizing that there were all these things that I did that were actually very feminine that I didn't realize were feminine until I tried to be a guy. Like, you know, putting on chapstick and kind of, you know, moving your lips in a very female way like you would with lipstick. These little things you never think about would give me away. I'm a touchy-feely person sometimes. Like, as a woman, I love that. Like, I had a waiter in a restaurant the other day, and I was kissing his cheeks, and, you know, it's like, you're so cute. Like, just the word cute. You cannot use the word cute as a dude. Whereas I love that stuff, and I always play with it. But um, I couldn't play as Ned because I would make mistakes. And having to get slapped down for that, and then and that being painful. Like, I took it personally. It was like, ow. So he sounded insecure, I think. I mean, well, especially if your character is to be like kind of like emotionally withdrawn. And uh, I would think that that would really you'd start to take that on and kind of feel alienated from people. Yeah. I mean, I felt like my my emotional bandwidth suddenly was, you know, tiny. And and that was one of the conclusions that I drew that I think the definition of manhood is so narrow. Women do have that privilege in our culture to have a much larger bandwidth of what's acceptably female or feminine. I felt much freer as a dyke. You know, I I did all those pieces and everyone wanted to know, oh, man, woman, you know. And what I learned really in the end, and I didn't even say this in the book, is that you're a fucking human being. It's not easy, no matter what your challenge is. And really, in the end, it's irrelevant. It's just part of our social structure. It's part, it's part of how we procreate, right? Gen- gender being something very different from sex. My dog is female. She is not feminine. In the dog world, like, they're not playing those games. And that's what we would be like, except that we've found over time that we need all these pretenses. But, you know, that's not, it has nothing to do with who you or I are as human beings, God, it's so fucking old. It's like, come on, move on. You know, okay, we've done that. Queer, yeah, I'm a dyke. Yes, okay, big deal, obvious. And that's exactly why I hate the gay ghetto, why I hate academia, because they're so still entrenched in that crap. And it's like, a lot of it's not in language and it's certainly not in academic terms and gender studies and all this shit. I've started to feel like I've peeled away a little bit of myself such that I can see, like I'll be watching a mother and her kids playing soccer on the lawn and it looks like a stage set to me. It looks like what it is, which is fake. It's all part of that fabric we put together of culture and society that, yes, makes things, generally speaking, run. But it's not real. The world that you see all around you is not really there, at least not in that form. Your brain is taking in what it can take in, but what is really there would scare the living shit out of you and you don't have the ability to see it anyway. What do you mean it's not real? Really what's out there is mostly light and that like an atom is filled with space more more than anything else. It's like there are these little particles and then huge spaces. So in a lot of ways, 
everything we're touching seems solid, but it's really made very much of air. This is not. This is like way off the rails. Is Maybe it not going to work? I don't know. No, See, no, because no, it's, don't, there's an evolution in me that I want to explain. And that is the evolution I'm talking about. That when I think back to Self-Made Man, I got to tell you honestly, I hate talking about that book because I am so far past that. That book came out in 2006. So here we are in 2015. To me, it seems like playing with little like blocks as a three-year-old when what you should be doing is using lasers. But it was definitely uh, the beginning of that process that I didn't even understand at the time of disappearing into another person. That's what I did in my immersion journalism. But this time I really did it. I really just disappeared into Virginia Woolf. So with the lamps all put out, the moon sunk, and a thin rain drumming on the roof, a downpouring of immense darkness began. Nothing, it seemed, could survive the flood, the profusion of darkness which, creeping in at keyholes and crevices, stole round window blinds, came into bedrooms, swallowed up here a jug and a basin, there a bowl of red and yellow dahlias. There, the sharp edges and flung the Virginia Woolf was born in 1882 in London. She was not educated classically. This was still when women couldn't go to Cambridge and Oxford. But she did study Latin and Greek, and that's what's even more amazing is she's an autodidact. She's become a feminist icon, really. Um, I think her best novels are Mrs. Dalloway to the Lighthouse and The Waves. And what they are is an entirely new way of conceptualizing fiction what they call the stream of consciousness style. What she was trying to do is really be a painter on the page. Uh, it's very impressionistic, bright colors, sensitivity to light. Nobody was writing about that, like that, that the human experience is a mental experience. I did not write this book, it wrote itself. It's about the life of Virginia Woolf told from her perspective her creativity and her madness and how they work together. It initially, it started out actually being about marriage. Um, it was going to be about the marriage she had with Leonard, but it's also very much about the internal process of Virginia Woolf as she was conceiving of To the Lighthouse in 1925 to the moment she stepped into the River Ouse to kill herself in 1941. And that's how, that's where it ends. What happened that last morning before she went into the river? What might have been going through her head? I believe the key to reading her and to her character was that she literally had a psychedelic experience of the world. But she did it naturally. As she said, you know, seeing eternity peeking through skirts and waistcoats describing things like like an, they have an imminence you know they just it, it's there's something astounding about the fact that they exist and there's a light coming out of them and something clicked and I thought this woman was clearly you know having visions it's like a dream 
and it helps a lot if you don't try to think of it in terms of your traditional story, but you just let her just take you and think about it as a trip. Don't fight. Just let go. To make her art, she had to cultivate that mindset and she had to stand on the edge. But it also is a very dangerous place to stand. I don't think you have to go to that place. That's what I've learned, is that you can stand there. Samuel Beckett stood in that place and in fact wrote an essay about this very idea of what the artist's job is. To see beyond what's in front of you, the everyday reality, which is not real, to the reality that's behind it and tell us what you see. But it's also scary and it's also hard to live an average life once you've been in something that feels so intense. She fell sometimes or Leonard caught her and eventually he couldn't catch her. It was almost inevitable. I didn't write this book. I just wrote down what I understood. I started this meditation daily. It became the conduit for this book, which I feel was received. The way I described it to people is it's like watching a stain spread on a tablecloth. I didn't hear voices or anything, I mean, but what you're getting is maybe something more like what Jung would call the collective unconscious. It's something that's not you. Think this book wrote itself because I started taking Dexedrine. Now, sure, speed will help. Meditating on speed is great. It really helps you to focus even more and you get out of the way. It's not going to make you someone you're not. And there's nothing in that book that isn't part of me. It's not stuff that, you know, I read 10 years ago. It's just been there. I was just able to access it more. I was often upstate in the country, seeing no one but my dog, and it was just feverish. And I, I was so caught up in this experience and getting it down. I was very much in what I describe as a, a fugue state. And I worked all day, every day. In January and February, I wrote 70,000 words. Unbelievable. I wouldn't even leave the house to get food. I would, like, make whatever I could rustle out of the pantry because I didn't want to leave the house. I mean, I was really sequestered. I didn't have enough touchstones that are necessary for a, a stable frame of mind, you know, to be with people. And, you know, I didn't, I don't think I did enough of that. At the end of these days, these very intense days of writing about Virginia, I needed to come down. And so, yeah, I had started drinking as a way of coming down from this fugue state and being able to sleep at night. I really wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating much. Um, and I was taking um, a, like one milligram of clonopin at night to sleep. This particular night, I had three milligrams of clonopin and I had a full bottle of wine on essentially an empty stomach. When you take an anxiolytic or a benzo like clonopin, 
you seem less intoxicated than you are and you do become sort of mechanical and sometimes you're enabled, I think, to do things that you wouldn't normally do. I, I do really want to um, protect the privacy of anyone else involved, so if you don't mind, I'll yeah, leave them out. But, but I couldn't sleep and I became very agitated and um, ended up getting into an argument with someone who was home at the time and um, they realized pretty quickly, like, you're not in a good place. Like, you're much more inebriated than you realize, and I'm not going to have this conversation. It was like a, a switch flicked. I got up out of the bed. I walked into the kitchen. I got a knife. I locked myself in the bathroom. I started cutting myself. It was very mechanical the way the me that did it did it. It was not a decision that I made did she see you walking into the bathroom? Yeah, and I didn't answer and because um, I was someone else at that point. Like, I had switched over. Anybody that I would call me or I was on the ceiling looking down watching this happening in horror, kind of. The next thing I was aware of was the police with a battering ram, like, on the other side of the door calling my name. And I remember very distinctly answering him in, in this very calm way. I, you know, they were saying Nora, and I said, yes. We're going to have to break the door down if you don't come and open it. So I, I just said, all right, all right. Like they were being reasonable, you know. And so I got out of the bathtub and uh, opened the door. And there I am standing there with this butcher knife bleeding. And, you know, of course they freaked out. They're like, drop the knife. Then I was taken away. I mean, they put cuffs on me and I got stitched up and, you know, all that stuff in the hospital. And then finally they, they ship you over to the psych section. And then it was the long process of really sort of saying, whoa. It was the last stop on the train. It was actually a moment of complete obliteration of the self. That's what the train really was going from self-made man all the way until now. That was the first time that I had truly kind of split away from myself. And I almost died doing it. But it was the act of that extremity that forced me into this place of much greater comfort with who I am. I literally became so immersed in Virginia Woolf that I enacted, you know, and that's not a way of trying to say that it wasn't me who did it. Looking back through the book, this was my suicide note. Woven very carefully into the facts of Virginia Woolf's life, but I put the words into her mouth. I put the thoughts into her mind. They were my ideas. You know, it was a serious attempt. The scar on my left thigh looks like a leech. I mean, it's really big. That's good and bad. You know, it's good because it's a reminder, and I need that reminder. And anybody that I'm intimate with, I tell them, like, right off the bat. I say, you need to know this. And I'm not ashamed of it. And I've been through it. Now that you've had this experience, you're able to talk to people about it. 
what do you say? Well, what, what insight do you have that you're able to share with? Well, I talked to actually a guy who like bought the noose and the diapers and like he was going to do it, like he was going to hang himself. So I said to this guy, yeah, well, you know, if you were really going to kill yourself, you wouldn't be talking to me. But you know what? That's a good thing. That means you want to live. You know, like I, I talked about sex with him and I said, you know, are you still masturbating? It sounds crass, but it's like a way of connecting on a very just like abrupt level. And I would joke with them. I'd be like, whack off, you know, like do it. It's like an exercise. You know, it's part of keeping yourself alive right now, you know. And then other times it was validating his anger about the world and the way it works, saying, I, I hear you. I totally get it. You're right. But you know what? There's going to be one fewer guy that's actually intelligent if you kill yourself. And don't leave me here, man. Why not just hang around for a while? I mean, what do you got to lose, really? The fact that I was in Bellevue a year ago, and I've laughed since then, and I've had wonderful times since then, and I told myself I would, and now that it's come true, I know that with certainty. And so when I say to people, it's going to be okay, and they say, well, how can you say that? I say, because I said it to myself in the mirror in Bellevue with the stitches in my neck. And guess what? It's true. can come back to and you will. That's it for Love and Radio. Nora Vincent's latest book is Adeline. The show was produced by Brendan Baker and myself, with help from Mike Martinez, Julian Clancy, and Christine Runo. We are a production of Radiotopia from PRX at radiotopia.fm.